Hi, everybody. This is Brett Roser with the Democrats Serve podcast, and I'm here as always with my co-host Robert Asensio. Hi, Brett. And uh, <laughs> hi, Robert. Really short hair. And, <laughs> no, it's great. Hey, brevity's <laughs> positive. I figured it'd be brief because we have, our time is, is of the essence. <laughs> no, sounds good. Today, we have a very special guest in Zycom, otherwise known as Zy, Coms of Voravong, who is the newly elected mayor of Newport, Rhode Island. And Zy is a longtime, very good friend of mine and a public service pro. And he ran for office for the first time, long anticipated by his friends and, and colleagues alike. And uh, did a fantastic job and thrilled to have him on the program today. So welcome, Zy. Thanks for having me on, Brett. Do you want to give a quick rundown of your prestigious background? <laughs> uh, well, I met Brad Broster and then I ran for office. And I, I think that is uh, as bad as start as we get. Now, I, I have spent most of my adult career working in and around civic service. It's something that's been critically important to my family since my father first immigrated to the U.S. as a refugee from Laos in the fallout of the Vietnam War. Started my career off uh, while at Brown University managing a statewide campaign for a gentleman running for state treasurer. He won, so at 22, became the deputy in the state treasury. Uh, worked in public service for a number of years, seeing our state treasury through uh, the last financial crisis. Uh, worked in the private sector for a number of years, uh, in the banking sector, specifically serving state and local governments, then pivoted over to uh, working in the private equity industry, specifically in infrastructure finance, helping public pension plans invest in American public infrastructure uh, before running for office uh, and getting elected this past December uh, to serve as Newport's next mayor. Extensive, stellar background. You know, as, as I was reading up about you, Mayor, uh, one, I had a hard time pronouncing your last name, but I think that comes with practice, right? But man, you gave me a, you gave me this feeling of a sense of, wow, we have a breath of fresh air. The first mayor across the U.S. that's elected as a Laotian background, congrats. But tell us a little bit about your efforts to get to where you're at today and your accomplishments to become the mayor. Sure. Well, I think it all started with the uh, responsibility that my parents instilled in me that civically we have a responsibility to give back to a community that's given us so much. And so from day one, regardless of whether I was working in the public sector full time or whether I was in the private sector and then civically serving on public boards and commissions, I always kept an eye towards doing what I could uh, that made sense within the abilities that I had, but also continuing to build the skill set uh, that I had to be an effective public servant. And so for me, this is my first foray into elected office, but in a lot of ways, I've been building the skill set to be effective for most of the past 20 years. So an exciting time to be stepping into helping to change and improve a community that I love dearly. You know, Newport is uh, an absolutely wonderful community, um, but it's gone through a lot of change really quickly. And I felt that they could benefit by having some people serving in government who might be able to help Newport navigate that change. Just incredible, Mayor. Uh, so, so I had read something, and I wanted to point this out. You just pointed to, you know, giving back to the community. But you were, I can quote you here as saying, you wanted to uh, capitalize on the kindness and opportunities that the city of Newport has pr provided your father um, as a refugee, a war refugee, in 1980, and that you're a lifelong citizen of 
Newport. Can you expand a little bit about that and what the like how the, how did that play out as you were growing up? Because I like to get to where you're going in the future, man. Because I I, I can't say it enough. I admire what I've read about you, and I think you're a rising star. And we should definitely definitely uh, get to know you better. Well, thanks so much. I am very focused on my community that I'm in right now and making sure that I do everything I can to set this community up for the future that it deserves and to address the challenges that inevitably will come as part of that future. Um, but my father came to Rhode Island in the 1980s as a refugee from Laos. You know, Laos uh, dealt with a lot of the fallout from the Vietnam War. My grandfather was part of the democratic regime uh, that was in Laos when the communists first came in, very close in timing to what was occurring in Vietnam. And so my father spent a lot of his youth um, fleeing the communists and, and eventually finding his way to the U.S. on a journey that was almost 12 years long and included two years in, um, in a refugee camp in Thailand before he was sponsored by a church group in Brett's home state, Minnesota, uh, before eventually resettling with some of my other family, my aunts and uncles. Uh, in Rhode Island itself. And so that was a very long journey to uh, take across the world for a young man who at the time he ultimately made it here uh, was about uh, you know, 15, 16, 17, somewhere in that range. And uh, from that point forward, my father worked incredibly hard to try and get a foothold in this country. And every step along the way, uh, received an incredible amount of kindness and support from the community that we're now very lucky to call home. Uh, for him, that was Providence. That, that, that was the area where we originally got our foothold in before um, ultimately moving across different parts of the state. But in every community we moved into, we were just met with such welcome and such support. And that was a big part of what made me so successful in my own career, but also my family so happy to call Rhode Island home. Well, just the American dream. Brett? And, and Zai, on that note, um, so we met when in college Democrats and working in, in politics uh, back then. And you, at a very young age, were managing a campaign. And as you said, got through campaign cycle and then went into the, the state treasurer's office. And I mean, amid the financial collapse, can you tell me a little bit about that and how that's influenced um, you as a as a public service pro and now mayor. Yeah, you know, one of the things that I love about our country is that there are still aspects of it that are a meritocracy where you can get in and get involved and actually make a difference and have a chance of reaching really high levels of success, regardless of whether your family just got here or your family's been here for several generations. And for me, that all started by working for a young state senator named Frank Caprio. This is somebody who I thought was dynamic and intelligent, and I wanted the opportunity to work with him. And he welcomed me into his world and showed me around uh, starting from day one. And so I ultimately had the chance to manage his campaign for state treasurer when I was 21 years old, and he won. And so here we are. We found ourselves in the state treasurer's office. He is a very young state treasurer in his mid-30s. I am an even younger deputy at 22, and we are now responsible for running a multi-billion dollar enterprise responsible for supporting um, you know, tens of thousands of state employees in addition to the pensions of um, tens of thousands more and the cash flow for a state of almost a million people. And everything seemed pretty good. It seemed like we were off the races, that we were going to have a good start, that I was going to be able to learn gradually in this new role. And then all of a sudden, the financial crisis hit. And you find yourself navigating a crisis, not only of that scale, but where the responsibility for finding a pathway through it directly falls 
on an office that for years had otherwise been a very sleep backwater of state government. And it was a very rapid education in how important it is to move swiftly and definitively through crises, but also to know what you don't know. And when you don't have the right answers to go out and find the best possible experts you can to guide you through that, uh, and then take their advice and move forward in a very clear path. Yeah. Mayor, I think the biggest challenge for anyone in elected office today, it points to your background in finance and helping people find solutions. But what, what, are the, what would you say to those that are struggling and, and trying to find a, a, a financial pathway to, to better life, quality of life? Um, how do you address, how do, should we as Democrats address this issue of the real, what's really hurting the Americans? their pocket. Yeah, I think we need to look at the things right now that are really inhibiting middle class Americans and working class Americans from getting forward. Um, there are basic things that the party focuses a lot of attention on. And then there are these other issues that are complicated public policy issues that we know we need to do a better job at, but we're still trying to figure out what exactly is the right pathway to closing those gaps that are going to help close that equity gap to actually give uh, working class Americans a really fair shot at the American dream. For me and my community uh, in Newport, I know that one of those gaps is housing. Um, we have a severe housing crisis. And I think a lot of times when people talk about housing, housing crises, they think of homelessness, which of course is one of the most acute uh, areas of, of pain when it comes to the housing crisis. But this dilemma really extends across the income spectrum where people are feeling a high level of insecurity with regards to their housing. These are working class families. These are middle class families. These are even upper class families who kind of look across the board and say that the aspects of my community that I love, that I care about, the theater I enjoy going to, the school teacher I love and my, uh, that my child uh, you know, is lucky enough to have um, on a day-to-day -day basis. These are core parts of my community that are no longer stable because of an inability to find housing that they can afford based on the incomes that they're making right now. The second area that I think is really important is education. I am a product of public schools and uh, was able to go on and have a great deal of success. I attended Brown for both graduate school and undergraduate and later in life went to law school. Uh, that would not have been possible had I not had a top tier public education. And right now, our school systems in Rhode Island are not delivering at nearly the level that our students deserve or need in order to be able to succeed and compete in the future. And our state's future viability economically and socially is directly reliant on how strong a labor workforce we have and whether they are being equipped by our school system to have the skills to compete. Those two things right there, that base of having a home and having education to provide an upper pathway uh, are two critical parts to ensuring that we're able to start to close some of the, um, some of the access and equality gaps that exist in our communities. So Zai, let's talk a little bit about the campaign trail here. So. Um, I know, and as stated previously, that it was long anticipated by um, those close to you that you'd run for office one day. And so you decided this year to run for city council in Newport. And uh, tell me about the decision-making process there and, um, and how you liked it. Yeah, it was running for office was one of the best experiences of my life. Um, somebody very wisely told me at the beginning of the campaign, whenever I'd start thinking about policy and strategy and a lot of other aspects that are really important. Look, you're a smart guy's eye, but just go out there, knock on doors and listen to people. And so I started doing that every single day, going out with a goal of trying to knock on 70 doors every single day. Well, by the time we got to the end of the campaign, we'd knocked on almost 5,000 doors. And that ended up being absolutely pivotal 
not only to people being familiar with who I was and getting comfortable with what is a rather unusual name for a community like Newport, but also for really affirming to me that I understood our community inside and out. I have stepped foot on every single street in my town, every single street. And so when I get a phone call about there being a parking issue, or when I hear about there being um, a specific shortage of housing in a part of the city or stormwater challenges, I know exactly what that person is talking about. I can visualize exactly where their house is. And I can recall and say back to them, oh yeah, I walked your street back in July. And I noticed at that point that there were some of these issues then. And maybe we can come back and take a look at how we can better address this issue as a city and find a solution to you, for you. And so it, it was wonderful. Knocking on doors can be kind of intimidating because you're essentially cold calling, but in person. So it's not even like you're getting hung up on, you're getting a door slammed in your face. Um, but when you realize that that is the worst possible thing that's going to happen to you, you very quickly have an appreciation for the other 95% of experiences you're having. People willing to take part of their day to tell you about something that's really bothering them. People being willing to open up to a stranger um, and trust that you're somebody who not only is going to listen, but that potentially could help them someday with the specific challenges that they're dealing with, or at the very least, just that there's somebody, period, who's listening. It was amazing to me that coming out of COVID, uh, where people hadn't had that interpersonal experience, where um, there hadn't been campaigns would come door to door in a very long time, that people were sincerely very appreciative of somebody coming to the door and being willing to listen. I think at the end of the day, the reason why I won was such a large victory was in part because of that. Um, it was because people were yearning for that, that I was more than happy and engaged to uh, be able to listen to them and hear them and, and be part of that, that healing process that our community went through and hopefully preparing for a stronger footing and move forward in the future as a community together. What would you say your plans are for the city of Newport moving forward into the future here as mayor? So I want to step back for a little bit and talk a bit about Newport as a community so you can understand why I have the specific plans that I do. Um, Newport is historically one of um, the most beautiful communities in the United States to come visit on the coast. It is a classic New England town. Uh, it has been the home to multiple different um, iterations of glamour uh, throughout history. There's currently an HBO series. Um, running called the Gilded Age that looks at the history of the Vanderbilts and the Astors and some of the great uh, industry barons that came through to build these magnificent mansions. We were the host of the America's Cup. Uh, we are where Bob Dylan first went electric uh, at the Newport Folk Festival. We have this incredible history of being the location for some iconic moments in America. It's where the Kennedys got married, right? Um, and the state spends an enormous amount of time and energy in making us the jewel of the state that people come to when they think of an ideal place to come visit, to learn, and to be inspired. And that is a, a wonderful, wonderful thing for us to have. But the reality is that you got to pull back the curtain a little bit. And, and behind the scenes, just like underneath the waterline with a, a duck swimming along, it takes an incredible amount for that all to happen, not just on a day-to-day -day basis. But looking back historically, this is a community that is built on the working class, that the working class has done a tremendous amount to deliver on. And it's one of the few places in America uh, where our community, regardless of your socioeconomic background, blends really well, gets along and sincerely enjoys um, being together as one in a community. But the reality is that while we spent an incredible amount of time and money building up um, this absolutely beautiful 
um, community is that behind the scenes, there's a lot of deferred maintenance that we need to do in order to keep that community livable for the people that make it such a culturally dynamic and interesting place. What this means is that we need to address that housing crisis that I was talking to you about before. We need to start building out that missing middle of housing. Newport has the second highest concentration of affordable housing in the state of Rhode Island, right? But that being said, we also have that entire gap between affordable housing and very, very high-end housing that needs to be closed if we're going to continue to have homes for firefighters and school teachers and doctors and the executive directors of these wonderful nonprofits that we have and the young families that want to come home and buy their first home here to be closer to their parents that might have lived here for a long time. So we need to start addressing a housing crisis on an island where 90% of our real estate is already built out, where over half of our housing is rental, uh, where we have had rent increases in excess of 25% over the past five years, where we have seen home values grow more than 40% over the past five years, uh, where we have a huge influx of middle-class homes being turned into short-term rentals at the very same time that we have too little middle-class housing stock. Um, and so we you know, have to work on addressing the basics here of housing. Second, we need to deal with our infrastructure. Newport is a coastal city. Um, and so we have an enormous amount of coastline uh, that's constantly where the, the, the sea is meeting the land and it's constantly getting battered and sea level rise. And so between that constant wear of the ocean on our coast and sea level rise, uh, we are confronting climate change on the front lines of dealing with those challenges. That is further compounded by the, the more and more severe rainstorms that we continue to have. But when you're located on an island that's basically rock, uh, there's nowhere for that water to go but flooding into the existing homes that exist. Um, and then finally, we need to deal with education. Newport has one of the lower performing school systems in the state of Rhode Island. It's a very small school system. It's only 2000 kids. And it's quite an unusual thing to be sitting in a community that is considered the cultural epicenter of the state, one of the cultural icons of our country. And to have a school system that is so severely lacking in delivering the education that kids need in order to learn, succeed, grow, and be contributing members to our economy. And so we have to work on finding a solution there that is more than just making the incremental change that government typically is okay making, but actually is something that is generationally defining and different in order to move Newport into the future. And Zai, just to take a step back from the, um, uh, from the governing piece to the campaign side of things, uh, I know, not just being a candidate, you've, as you've stated previously, you've worked in politics for a long time. And I always think that folks who have gone through, as a campaign staffer, crisis situations, as, as you did at a very young age, um, and coming out of that and getting away from politics for a bit, and then um, coming back into the public service pro arena, Tell me a little bit about, one, what you learned from that experience and took into your candidacy, and two, how your, not only your public sector experience, but your private sector experience influence your work now. Thanks, Brett. And, and as you look at my background, you know, one of the things you'll notice is I've done a couple different things. I haven't bounced around a ton. I spent almost 10 years um, at a regional commercial bank where I led their government lending practice um, because I felt it was really important to learn finance specifically. But I think one of the first lessons you learn um, is you need to know what you don't know. You don't have to know it all, obviously, and you don't even need to pretend that you know it all, but you do really need to know what you don't know. 
because that's where you can get yourself into an awful lot of trouble very quickly. Uh, the second thing that I found is that you need to move with a high level of urgency. Government is an institution and institutions inherently do not move quickly. And you have to find pathways through which you can move quickly to help implement the changes that you believe are necessary. Um, while at the same time being effective, I think a lot of people who come into uh, elected office for the first time, having only worked in the private sector, for example, come in and slam the table and want a bunch of change to happen quickly, get really, really frustrated when it doesn't happen, and then end up running continuously into a brick wall until they eventually get frustrated and leave government or aren't elected back. Conversely, I think those that come from solely a government background sometimes don't move with the sense of urgency that's required, sometimes don't look at things through the same performance-driven mentality that the private sector might. And so having that dual background, I found to be really helpful uh, and I hope will prove to be very successful over the next couple of years. And Robert, actually kicking that question to you as well with a public service background and um, time in the, the private sector and, and serving as an elected official, how, do, how does that influence kind of you as a as a policymaker and as a candidate? Yeah, certainly the better for me, the better public servant serving in elected office is the one who can take a look back. And I'm going to dovetail off what the mayor just said that recognizes that they don't know it all and that they seek solutions and answers from all those that are around them, the stakeholders. But I think that the best public servant is the one that is willing to listen. Um, I, I believe the biggest downfall that we who have served in public, in the public and the government sector before we become elected or before we get elected is the fact that we think we know it all and we don't. So I'm really complimentary of the mayor because I think what I see here is what we need from more elected personnel. We need a person that has a balance in their, in their background of the private and public sector. I'm not sure if I answered your question correctly, but I think the mayor is on point. And what I wanted to ask the mayor right now is, what advice would you give somebody who has public sector experience, but is looking and wanting to get into the world of politics, whether it's as a staffer, as a campaign helper, or even as an elected official running for office? Do it. <laughs> Jump in, right? Jump in and do it. it. When you have that perspective of having served at the staff level, when you have that perspective of having been a civil servant and you inherently understand what the life is like of the people who you are responsible for working with every day, I think that makes you more effective um, and a more compassionate person and working with those personnel. Before I make any decision um, regarding a priority that I'm going to ask for from the dais, I take time to talk to and listen to the ultimate staff who are going to be responsible for implementing these ideas. I talk to and listen to the people who will be impacted by these policies. Because while I may think that something is a really great idea, something being a good idea isn't enough. It has to be something that's also going to have buy-in from the people who are going to be impacted by it and buy-in from the people who are going to be responsible for implementing it. If you don't, you could have the greatest idea in the world. You can pass whatever law that you want, and then it will just sit there and linger or it won't actually end up reaching the people who ultimately need whatever that solution is that you are advocating for. So making sure that there's that entirety um, of the spectrum of individuals who are gonna be impacted by a decision 
is really important. And I think that when you come from public service, when you have worked civically as a school teacher, as a firefighter, as a police officer, you have a different perspective that is incredibly valuable that makes you much more effective when it comes to actually implementing and making policy. So let's talk a little bit about on the on the running for office side, um, fundraising. How was that process and what worked, what didn't? What advice would you have for somebody who's who's out there as a public service pro deciding to run for office at a young age like yourself? Yeah, thanks. Well, and I love the duality of this. This is fun, right? We're bouncing between the, the civic service aspect of things and then the, um, the, uh, the politics side. It, start raising money the second that you think you might want to run for office. Go out, open a campaign account and start raising money. And I think the most important thing to remember is that you have to make the ask. And how you make that ask um, is going to be dependent on what you're most comfortable doing, but then take that, that initial comfort zone and push it a little bit further. The most effective way to raise money is by picking up the phone or, and, or, or setting dates to actually go out and meet with and talk to people and then making the ask either in person or over the phone. Emails and letters are great once you have an established base and established profile, but as you're starting out, you really need to do that individual outreach. I thought that running for office, a lot of the contributions, the majority of the contributions I'd receive would be from people who have known me for years, that cohort of friends who said, someday, maybe Zai will run for office. Um, I don't think any of us thought it would be for city council, but um, nonetheless, that, you know, always were kind of waiting there and ready to jump in and support. And indeed, that crew of people, you know, jumped in and helped. And all of us have a circle like that, even if it wasn't specifically politics that we were thinking about, but we have all done, we've all... Well, I have not run a 5K, but we've all done fundraising for things like 5Ks, for charity walks, for food drives, right? And so we have those people that we know we can reach out and make the ask to. Think about those asks more as, as practice than necessarily the ask itself. And get ready to actually make the ask to people that you might not know quite as well. I was stunned by the number of people who contributed to my campaign who I met for the first time while actually running for office. Um, you think about that when somebody runs for Congress or governor or, or these major offices, but for a city council race, um, that was something really unique and really different. And I'm incredibly thankful for all the support that those people gave me, but it also, you know, enlightened me to the fact that a lot of this really is just getting out there and making the ask because there are people who want to support good people running for office. They're just waiting to be asked and, and finding them can be hit or miss unless you have the helpful guidance of a professional fundraising consultant or community member who really understands what the lay of the land is, but starting to get out there and just having conversations and making the ask is the best possible way to start the process. And once you start pulling at that thread, you'll find that there's a whole lot more line to run with. So I can't help but to ask. I hear inclusion on your part. I hear a perspective that's both from the private and public sector. I hear campaign experience. I hear staff experience. What's next for Cy, um, the mayor? Do you see yourself running for a higher office? I see myself, you know, doing my part to fix and situate one of America's good towns into being one of America's greatest cities. Uh, we are a small community, but we are something that has a community with deep history, uh, with an incredible amount of cultural complexity, with a tremendous amount of resourcing to it. And I think it's a really interesting place to use as an example of where America should be at its best if we work to build a community and focus on it. I love city government. Um, Brett's known me for years and he has seen me through a bunch of their iterations. Um, one of the most rewarding professional experiences for me 
uh, was working as a municipal advisor to cities and towns and school districts, negotiating against investment banks, helping them get public projects structured. It's rewarding. Cities are where the rubber hits the road. And so I absolutely uh, love the opportunity that I've been given right now to serve my community. And I'm focused on doing a really, really good job of that over the next several years. Um, you know, the example I would give a lot on the campaign trail where, you know, I'd, I'd be doing a, a backyard rally or, or, or a house party. Um, sailing is a really popular thing to do at Newport. And I have a, a really good buddy who is a world-renowned sailor, an ocean racer specifically, spends a lot of time offshore. Um, but he's had kids. He now runs a nonprofit. Um, he's you know very involved in the community. So more often than not, you're not going to see him, you know, crushing a, a, a 70 foot boat sailing across, uh, you know, the Atlantic jumping waves, you're going to see him racing a little radio controlled boat off the dock. Uh, and so I walked down there, I said, Brad, this, this is great, but what's next? What do you, what do you, what do you, what, what's the next big race you're planning to do? And he always says, this is it, right? I really, really love sailing. And so I'm going to find a way to sail in a way that comports with the rest of my life and the things that are really important to me. For me, my community I live in right now and my family are the two most important things. And so serving as mayor is a great way to have that outlet for civic service and impact uh, that still comports and works with the rest of my life and the things that are important to me. Zai, how was balancing life, family life, work life while you were running for office? And what advice would you have for somebody who is worried about that and it's the reason why they're not going to run? You have to really have a sincere conversation with your partner and your family. Uh, to determine if it's something that they're ready to take on. I have the world's most supportive spouse in Alicia. She is tremendous. And um, she is involved every step of the way, um, helping me behind the scenes. She's alongside me at events. When I'm traveling, she's going to events on my behalf. She's incredible. She is as invested in this as anyone. And so when you go to run, it's a family effort. Um, and, and you need to think about whether the entirety of your family unit is on board with doing that. It's an enormous amount of sacrifice and it's very, very difficult to delineate between what's going to be your public time versus what's going to be your private time for your family. You go out to dinner and, you know, what you find more often than not is somebody walks up to the table and they say, oh, mayor, look, I know you never get time with your family and that you're super busy and that you've got a ton of work and that this is the only time that you get to spend uh, with Alicia. Um, and so I'm really sorry to bother you, but I got to ask you about this one thing, right? And you're like, okay, so you know, people understand that this is a big sacrifice, but there's no boundary that exists um, when you're serving in a community where uh, they're very used to and expectant that you're going to be there with them. And, and we love it. We, we, we love engaging with our neighbors, but the reality is it's very, very hard to control that. Um, so setting those boundaries is important. You know, Alicia and I try to have one dedicated date night a week. Um, but that's a really, really tough balance to strike. And so I'm not going to lie and tell you that I figured out the exact right way to make that balance happen and make that work. I can't help but to ask one more question here. As a son of an immigrant family, as a patriot, this divide that we see across the country, certainly coming from our nation's capital, how do you see a way to unite our nation as an elected leader? I think you hit on it earlier um, in part, which is listening. When I was canvassing, I didn't knock on the doors of just Democrats or independents. I knocked on every door. I even knocked on the doors where I might've seen a Trump flag flying um, and, and had no issue walking right up that door knocking. And more often than not, um, the secret to getting that person's vote was just listening. 
And, and so I took that and I thought about it for a bit when I first um, was selected to take the helm of the council. Thought, how do I take that and replicate that a little bit? Right? Oftentimes, I think we're saying very similar things as Americans about 90% of what we care about. Um, when we're left to actually just talk as if we were in a vacuum. Oftentimes people will look at you and try and size you up and figure you out and they will tell you something based on how they want you to perceive them, right? They will play into a stereotype that they expect you to think when you walk up and you see a particular flag in front of their house. Um, but if you step back and you give people some time and you just listen, oftentimes what you find is that that, that shell that they initially present peels back a little bit. And what they're saying isn't too different from the things that we all care about, right? Um, opportunities for success, uh, basic levels of decency, public safety. Um, these aren't things that are controversial um, or partisan based. And they're things that are what most people care about at the end of the day. Most people don't care about whatever Tucker Carlson's ranting and raving about on TV right? Or what Rachel Maddow might have had as her outrage of the week. What they really care about are their families. They care about their homes. They care about Little League. They care about um, seniors in the community, veterans. Um, they care about their community. And the more we can spend time talking about our communities and the things that we share, the better off we're going to be. When the city council first came together, I held a goal setting session. And I said, you know, I want you to come to the table with what your top three to five goals are that you want to accomplish over this next uh, council session. And I don't want you to tell me why you want these things. I want you just to tell me what they are. And most people came to the table with the same things. They came to the table with the same things for wildly different reasons. And as they would talk more through the reasons, you have more divisiveness that occurs. But if you just got focused back on what the things are that they really care about, it tends more often than not to be the same. And so the more we listen, the more we're objectively focused on where we can build consensus. I think the more we can forge paths forward where our country is actually going to be better off in the long run and more united. Just to clarify for our friends that, uh, out there listening who might run for office, when you say every door, you mean every targeted voter door? Yes, yes. <laughs> and so let's, let's specify what we mean by targeted voters, right? There are large portions of the American public that are registered to vote, but that don't actually turn out and vote on election day. And so you do have to be thoughtful about um, where you're going to knock on doors when you only have a limited bandwidth. I walked every single neighborhood in our city. Um, I spent um, a lot of time in neighborhoods that I thought um, were gonna be denser and, and you know more voter rich uh, because those are communities that I knew were already displaying a high level of engagement and who I could expect to engage in the process and actually turn out on election day without being compelled to. It's important that we grow what that universe looks like. And that's where a lot of the equity work needs to be done from an organizing perspective in our communities. Um, but as we build up to that, it's important to also be very, very strategic with where we're spending our time uh, to ensure that we're reaching those voices that are actually having an intent of pushing through to be heard come election day. Robert, any last words? Any last questions for you? No, I really thank you for sharing and providing your time, being gracious with your time here. But I last, last of all questions. When we're looking at campaigns and we recognize that there's all levels of campaigning, you know, there's all type of aspects of the campaign that need to be filled. What would you say was the most impactful um, part of your campaign that got you the lead or provided the lead 
so that he puts you over the top and it puts you in a, in, a, in a very favorable position to win your race. When you're knocking on doors, what you want to really think carefully about um, is how you're actually connecting with people. And when you find that you have a sincere connection with somebody, it's really important to push further to see if there is an appetite for that person to be more engaged in what's going on in their community and what's going on in your campaign. When I found those opportunities, um, those were the people who ended up being some of my greatest champions uh, through letters to the editor, through showing up at community events, through sending me events that I should be at, through hosting house parties for me, through helping me fundraise. And these are people who prior to stepping out each day at three o'clock to go sweat it out in the July and August sun, had no idea who I was before I stepped foot on their, on their front doorstep. So if you listen and you watch people, you can usually discern whether or not, you know, they have a voice that they want heard and they want to be engaged in the process. And when you find those people, uh, embrace them, right? Cherish those relationships, nurture them and work with them because they are the community champions that help give you a voice when it comes time to actually tell your story on the campaign trail and come election day. Well, Zai, I can't thank you enough for your time and for being on, uh, any last words you want you have for uh, wrapping this up? Thank you both for having me on. This has been terrific. I am incredibly optimistic about what the future looks for for, Dem- like for Democrats, especially at the local level. Uh, and thanks for all the work that you both are doing. Oh, well, thank you, Zai. And thank you, Robert. And thanks to everybody listening to another episode of the Democrats Serve podcast. And we will be back with more. <laughs>